morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to the next episode of the OnkData Advisor Fellows Forum. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Matthew Hadfield of Brown University. He's finishing his third year of uh, Hematology and Medical Oncology Fellowship. And today, we're going to have a continuation of last week's episode discussing educational initiatives and opportunities during fellowship. Welcome, Matt. Thank you so much to be talking to you today. Awesome. Well, I just wanted to kind of go over a couple of questions um, as we were reflecting on uh, last week's episode, looking at educational resources and initiatives during fellowship. Um, I guess we could open with our first question here. What educational resources are you using to prepare for the hematology or medical oncology board exams? Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, fellowship's been a little bit of a different experience than than residency was. Um, and, and honestly, that was even different than, than medical school. I feel like as and I, I'm not sure if you feel the same way, but as I progress through training, I feel as though the well delineated resources that we're so used to using uh, become less and less clear as you get further into training. Um, you, you know, for first uh, for step one, there was first aid and there was um, pathoma, and it was it was you know these are the resources you used, and then in residency it was mixap, um, and then in fellowship, I feel as though I've been using uh, a combination of of primary literature, so going through. For instance, the the trial papers that um, you know delineate the NCCN guidelines and, and things like that. But also, just as like a scaffolding to work off, I've been using the ASCO question bank. I feel like that that's been a good way to sort of learn the material in real time and then supplement those other things that I've been using. Yeah, I, you know, I think you really hit the nail on the head there. It's like as we're in medical school, especially in those preclinical years, there's kind of an array of resources that are kind of passed down informally and formally um, from uh, year to year. And then step two, that seemed a little bit less so. And then even really in residency, like you said, you've got the kind of ABIM practice questions. And after that, there's not a whole lot. So it's really up to each learner, I think, to kind of find her or his kind of best path forward. Two resources that I've really enjoyed using um, and with no you know, affiliation to either of them, just uh, knowing that they're quite prevalent in the field are the MD Anderson board review series and then the GW board uh, review series as well. Um, I've kind of seen um, uh, clippings from both of them and think they're both super helpful. Um, I know there are other sorts of informal question banks out there that a lot of fellows will use, like you mentioned, and those can be helpful. But yeah, it's really kind of up to fellowship culture um, and making sure that each successive class kind of becomes aware. So certainly been a challenge, but a rewarding one, I think, thankfully. No, absolutely. Uh, okay, so then going on to our next question, um, and this is changing um, the uh, theme a little bit. How do you best teach other learners on your team, such as medical students and residents when they rotate with you? Yeah, I feel like uh, in, in HEM-ONC, especially the amount of knowledge that you can go over is, is quite vast, especially, you know, for instance, if you have a, a medical student or a resident with you in a clinic with an attending and you see a patient with stage three lung cancer, I mean, that in and of itself could be a, a, a several hour conversation. You know, you go over the Pacific trial, you go over all the nuances of the Pacific trial, you know, who was included, who wasn't included. Um, I, I feel as though trying to take patient cases, you know, for instance, that patient or taking a patient with metastatic melanoma and then talking about how, you know, BRAF mutations are, are, are most prevalent in metastatic melanoma. And, and that was really the basis for, you know, BRAF combination therapy in that patient population. And, and just trying to highlight maybe more the, the relevant points for their level of training. You know, I, I think a medical student knowing, you know, the subgroup analysis of the DreamSeq trial isn't necessarily going to help them at all. But, you know, knowing how to diagnose 
you know, immunotherapy related pneumonitis will. And, and trying to tie it back to some type of uh, board relevant material for them. So, um, you know, I, I try really hard when I have medical students or residents to, to figure out what their level of training is and, and what's going to help them with whatever test they're going to be taking ultimately um, and, and what really is going to help them in clinical practice in the future. And I, I think that changes a little bit if someone is particularly interested in hemonc or expressed an interest in applying for an oncology fellowship in the future. You know, maybe you go a little bit more in depth, but I'd be interested to hear what, what you know, how you approach teaching uh, learners on your team. Yeah. So, I mean, again, a, a really great answer. I thought you really got to meet folks where they are, right? So when you're dropping in trials like Pacific and DreamSeek, I've already got my fellow almost attending mind on thinking about those subgroups, like you were mentioning, talking about eligibility, applicability, generalizability, et cetera. And that's certainly way too high for the majority of tra uh, trainees, either at the student or resident level, right? So two things that I kind of like to do when I'm teaching on my team are to employ the cognitive load theory and then also do chalk talks if possible. Cognitive load theory for those who might not have heard of it before kind of refers to the extrinsic or the intrinsic cognitive load that's associated with new topics. The way you can kind of mitigate both of these is by presenting material in a very straightforward manner and making sure you kind of cut out any extraneous or supplementary information. So I think like you just said, we don't want to be talking about subgroups for the Pacific trial because that's probably not relevant at the level even of an advanced uh, trainee like an internal medicine resident, but certainly discussing how it's changed standard of care rather and, and how that practice will be informed in, in years to come. The other uh, kind of uh, great example that I think we all pretty much do informally when we're teaching are these chalk talks. So we kind of take a lesson. So you gave the example of the inpatient case. If we've got a patient with an, a new diagnosis of acute leukemia and we want to teach trainees about the scary things, tumor lysis syndrome, disseminated intravascular coagulation, we can kind of just go over brief mechanisms of these pathways and then kind of uh, review high yield management topics. I think those are the best ways to tailor it to um, their level. But certainly, like you mentioned, um, you've really got to see where the trainee is at. I'll obviously assess his or her interest. That's crucial, of course, but just make sure that that person is prepared for their board exam, certainly. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. Um, all right. And then to close um, today's session, I was wondering, um, are there any other resources you'd like to highlight today that weren't mentioned uh, during the last uh, session uh, related to these education initiatives or topics? You know, one thing that I've really done much more in fellowship than I did in residency is uh, sought out social media as a source for like a jumping point for learning about new topics in oncology. I think, you know, there's there's several websites that do interviews articles with you know primary investigators on studies or you know point counterpoint type um, commentaries on trials and i think those are really really helpful hearing some of the leaders in each field talk about different studies and maybe their critiques or the you know how they'll adopt that into their clinical practice i, I feel like it's just a good way to start sort of greasing the wheels of thinking about my own opinions on a trial and, and, and maybe gives me some starting points to start thinking about, you know, what I agree with and don't agree with in a trial or, you know, will I adopt this into my practice or will I not? Um, I think, you know, those are much more prevalent and available in, in oncology than maybe they were in residency and, and uh, you know, it has certainly been helpful to augment some of those other materials that we've talked about. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, Twitter, at least, uh, of all the social media channels, is huge in the fields of hematology and oncology. One of my clinical and research mentors in residency pushed me uh, a little bit with my grinding teeth to make sure that I created that account. And now I'm very ha happy that I have it. I feel part of the community. I'm able to see those trial previews, like you mentioned, and really kind of leave my mark on the field, which I think is wonderful and important as we kind of uh, ascend the ranks of our training. Another resource I wanted to highlight, and I do believe this requires a mandatory disclosure as i3health and Onc Data Advisor are, are kind of similarly aligned, but i3health has wonderful resources, um, especially for fellowship programs that I kind of encourage you all to take a look at. We've adopted it here at the University of Miami into our uh, curriculum and just had really great success with it, but essentially they'll organize on-site or virtual CME discussions for you fellows, um, APPs, and even really attendings if they wish to, to join the series. Um, I know at our institution we've hosted one on uh, TTP and we're soon to host one on another similar sort of mm. classical hematology topic and really gotten great feedback from our uh, fellows related to the relevancy and also kind of um, urgency of the topics from national leaders. So definitely take a look at those if you're interested in adopting something new and novel, especially for connecting with experts who may or may not be outside your institution. I would agree. Awesome. Great. Um, Dr. Havel, did you have any other closing thoughts before we wrapped up the session? No, I think, I, you know, this was a fun conversation. I think, you know, like we mentioned earlier, it, it's it's harder as you go through your training to sort of find the scaffolding to work off for, for studying for boards. You know, ultimately that's, you know, something you have to do. But really what we have to really grasp is how are we going to manage patients appropriately and, and, and master the mass amount of knowledge we have. And, and I think, you know, highlighting some of these resources is important. And, um, you know, some of the less common resources, like, like, as you mentioned, these on-site, you know, I3 health type CME events, um, or, you know, podcasts, things like that, that tie in national leaders, international leaders on these subjects, really just helps solidify those concepts so that you manage patients better, but you also do better on, on, on things like standardized tests. So it's important to incorporate all those types of resources. Absolutely, absolutely. As I gear up for my first half of my board exams just a few weeks from now, I'll let you know uh, how successful these uh, avenues were towards my uh, passing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Best, best of luck with that. Thank you. Thank you. Same to you. And thanks to all for listening today. Uh, that will wrap up our session on education in fellowship. Thanks a lot.